Hello, everybody. James here, and it's Franchise University with the man himself, Shane Douglas. Now, two things I have to make mention of here. One, an apology. We were gone for three weeks. Uh, that's owing to Christmas, and we were just busy. And we couldn't really yeah. quite get it all together because uh, you've got to travel to get to do the recording. And yep. to be honest, I was just taking all December off for various reasons that we'll discuss another time. But uh, yes, yeah. Well, real quick to drop in there, you, you, you'd be happy to hear that I've been getting uh, tons of emails and people on the street saying, hey, did you guys do an episode this week? I didn't see the episode, and uh, so they're they're aware out there. Yes, so there's are, uh... angry people out there, man. There's angry people who didn't get their day, a weekly dose of the franchise. Uh, the second one is we've got a bit of a microphone issue. So for this episode, I'm very, very sorry. It's, it's, uh, it's worse than it would right. normally be. We've had uh, a, a malfunction in the junction uh, technology-wise. <laughs> the microphone's just not working. So hopefully for the next episode or the episode afterwards, we'll get all that sorted. But for now, Shane... We've been, I mean, we've been sat here talking about the Beach Boys and every, and Psycho and <laughs> films and music and everything like that that we always do beforehand for about 50 minutes beforehand. But you uh, are going to be talking with me about news for in the wrestling world for the last month or so, and you've been completely divorced from the business for a month. So some of this stuff you'll know, some of this stuff is going to be totally new to you to react to. So uh, how can you just been so just away from wrestling? Is it just time of family enjoying it away? Holidays were great, uh, but my oldest son was uh, was up from uh, Nashville. Uh, they're, by the way, uh, group their group Dandovanes is going into the studio today with a uh, real producer, and so they're excited. Uh, be in Atlanta, Georgia, for a week or two, ten days, I think. Uh, but the boys were over Christmas Day. We spent the entire Christmas Day, including one of the first topics we'll talk about, uh, going and seeing the movie Iron Claw. Um, so fantastic. But for me. The holidays are always great in the rearview mirror because uh, I love spending time with the boys and everything, but the amount of work to go in to get to that point is pretty prodigious. But it sounds like you had a little bit more on your side of it. Uh, I'm I'm kayfabing why I was away in December. I'm, oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry to use the wrestling terminology, but it just came to my mind. There. But, no. I, but I was away for a while and it was very nice. And uh, uh, some good trips as well and, and uh, also, you know, as soon as I got back then, happily, people know from Dutch Mantel's show that Dutch got back and he's recovering as well. So everything sort of worked out and everything. But for Good. now, we are going to go to the news and you have alluded to it. And this is something that I'm not going to be able to watch until next month, at least legally. And that's the Iron Claw. <laughs> it's not coming out in, in, until February in the UK for whatever reason, but it has got a UK release date at least. But you saw it. Mm -hmm. When did you see it? Was it New uh, Year's Christmas Eve? Day. Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Yep. Let's let's have the um, let's do the Dave Meltzer five stars or two thumbs up or whatever you want to do. What do you think? Well, it's it's hard to give it two thumbs up because of the, the subject matter. Uh, but having you know, Carrie and I in 1990, 91, when I was in WWF, we traveled together, got to know him really well, and really really enjoyed being around him. Uh, the, the movie, it's well, first of all, uh, I guess we should put some spoiler alerts because I don't want to. You know, mm. if anybody wants to see it, might want to turn the volume down for a few seconds. Uh, the uh, They have Zach Efron playing Kevin Von Erich, and uh, Kevin never had dark hair. <laughs> so that's the first thing that threw me. Second thing is, is Zach Efron is jacked in this movie. I mean, he's humongous. Built more like Carrie, and Kevin was always in great shape, but always leaner and thinner. And you know, taller. So like the the, the hair or something, you, you sort of have to let yourself just go if you're you know if, 
if you're that well versed in the Von Erichs, uh, there is another spoiler alert. Uh, uh, one of the brothers, Chris, is not even in the movie. Like they just sort of like written him out of the movie because I guess the the studio said that another death would be too uh, uh, too dour. I guess too you know too uh, too melancholy. But I, to me, that was that's the story, right? I mean, that's the whole part point of the movie is that you're going to see. You know, I, I remember the, the phrase "curse" being thrown around, uh, you know, then and now, and it's hard to look at that and not think that there's some kind of you know something bigger at work because, and of course, you have Jack that died as as a, a toddler, two years old. Uh, then, of course, Chris and and Mike and and uh, David, of course. I remember David vividly because that was right around the time I was starting to break into the business. And uh, in once in the business, I always had always heard as good as Carrie was, and and I'll talk about that in a second. And, and Kevin. Uh, uh, and the family in general, the, the, the impact they had on the business, that David was by far and away the best worker of them all and uh, died you know, quite young uh, over in Japan, of course, in 84. So uh, the whole story, I think, is bereft uh, of, uh, you know, like any kind of really good time feeling. It's you're going to watch the movie because those of us that knew the, the Von Erics or the fans that knew of the Von Erics and their impact on wrestling, and it was big. Uh, we're we're all well versed in the story, and the story really is uh, sad. You know, it's a, and I think it's a testament to Kevin because you know Kevin was in and around all that and, and endured through all the same types of things that are alleged in the movie. Uh, but when he sold everything and moved to uh, uh, to Hawaii to be able to have better control over the environs, uh, people interacting with his kids, Ross and Marshall. Uh, I give a lot of credit for that because, you know, that, you know, for, as they're breaking into the business and when I dealt with Kevin quite extensively, we were working on the promotion in Las Vegas because we wanted to use Ross and Marshall. And, uh, you know, the first one of Kevin's listening out there, thank you, because he, he put his trust in me that we would be looking out for them and taking care of them. Uh, we wanted to build on that Von Eric legacy. But the movie itself, they, they, you know, as, as movies go, they, they, they've taken some creative license. Uh, where Carrie shoots himself, why that even was changed, you know, it's, in the movie, it's right in front of the parents' house. Uh, in reality, he had gone up in the hills on the. They had a massive ranch in Dallas. Uh, little things like that. But the, to me, Zach Efron would have been much better suited because of the way he was built. Uh, and I mean, he is gigantic in this movie. And I understand he's a fairly small guy uh, that, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he resembled in, in stature much more Carrie. Uh, but they did get into the, in the movie about, and again, they glossed over very quickly uh, about Carrie's foot being amputated. And I, and I, I want to insert here for a second, because everybody I tell the story to, I urge anybody to go now, after they've done watching this episode, to go pull up Kerry Von Erich versus Mr. Perfect in 1991, realize that he's working on a, basically a wooden foot that's in a neoprene sock and watch him, how he moves around that ring. You know, we've all heard the stories. Uh, those of us that knew him could see it nightly, but you know, the fans have all heard the story about what a stud he was, what a stallion of a, uh, of an athlete. And when you realize this is like pre all these incredible prostheses and things we have now because of these wars. Uh, 
realize that he's on an old wooden foot. I mean, this is like 1900s technology. And uh, watch him move around that ring. And it's hard to believe that he's on one foot. I, it really is. It's just incredible what an athlete he was. Uh, but the movie itself got pretty deep into it. I understand that Kevin was involved with it. Uh, I've not been able to speak to him to know to what degree, but uh, the movie doesn't gloss over any of that. Uh, as as far as you know, the uh, the imposing uh, uh, will of Fritz, um, you know, deciding it's time for this one to be world champion over that one. Uh, you know, just the way he sort of ran. And I, the movie alludes. I didn't know Michael at all, uh, but it, it alludes to Mike was more like a gentle soul, more of an artist type. And uh, that, you know, that his dad, you know, Fritz was really hard on him. And, uh, you know, it becomes a point of contention in the movie. Overall, though, as, as, again, you hate to give it two thumbs up because of the, the subject matter. But I thought the movie was well done. And having known Carrie uh, and of the family and, you know, coming into the business at, at the time that all this is occurring, uh, I think they do a pretty good job. But again, I can't understand why the studio would feel that one more death would be too much uh, because that is the story, right? That's the story to be conveyed. But uh, as far as the way the movie's done, I thought Chavo Guerrero, a little shout out for Chavo. Uh, uh, Happy New Year, Feliz Navidad. He uh, uh, was the choreographer in the movie. Uh, but criticism, not of Chavo. Chavo, I thought, did a phenomenal job with actors. I had done that for a play in Pittsburgh, and working with actors that have never done any of this stuff in the ring, you've got to keep it basic. And, I, and you really can't teach them how to be a wrestler. You can sort of rote into them, rote, R-O-T-E, rote into them uh, uh, the, the scenes that we have to do. And, and the actors in the play did quite well with it. And, and the guys in the movie, because of Chavo, I think, did quite well with it. And Chavo plays an on-screen role as, uh, as, as uh, Sheik. Uh, which is sort of neat to see. Uh, the For those purists of the wrestling fans out there, they're going to be disappointed in the Bruiser Brody uh, character. The guy does a great job acting-wise, but he's way too small to be Bruiser Brody. Bru you know, Bruiser was a huge, gigantic man. Uh, but again, as far as the way the movie was done and the way it lays the story out, the character that plays, the actor that plays uh, Fritz, it's eerie. Uh, he looks so much like him, built like him, and really had his mannerisms down in the ring, uh, you know, Fritz was more basic. But uh, he, like, when you watch him on screen, you get the feeling that you're watching Fritz. The other actors, not so much, because, again, like the, the, the physical differences and the features and things uh, that they took liberties with. But, again, like, for those of us that knew the family, if you could put that off to the side and just allow yourself to go into that world and watch the movie, I thought the movie was very well done. I, you know, again, two thumbs up on, on the movie itself. Two thumbs down on on, on the uh, just the awful impact it's had on that family, and I guess two thumbs up for Kevin. Uh, and and I, I've met Marshawn Ross, spoke with him multiple times. Two fine young men. I mean, really good young guys. And uh, so it's you know like one of those things for us that that, that knew uh, the family. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of sad watching. I think for me, I want to go back and watch it again though because I was with my boys and a couple of my friends went. And during the movie, they kept asking, like, hey, is that accurate? Did that really happen? And, uh, you know, so I just want to be able to go back and watch it. I didn't miss anything, but I want to make go back and just – I love watching movies. I just want to be able to sit down and just watch it and go to it. But when it does come to England, definitely go see it because it's a really well-done movie. And I think it underscores 
with all that gobbledygook I just mentioned about the liberties and the compressions and things, it is a very well done movie. And I think it does represent pretty accurately the, uh, uh, you could see how after watching this movie, for those that are unfamiliar with the story, how somebody like Kevin could have just been swallowed up by it. Uh, and the fact that he didn't succumb to that, I think, is, uh, is a testament to him as a man and as a father, uh, the way he took care of Ross and Marshall and continues to. Uh, to uh, for me, that was the bright spot coming out of the movie, that, that they're, 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 they're still doing so well. Uh, uh, and, and I think they're probably going to be having a hell of an impact on the business coming up soon, hopefully. Did you ever see Bohemian Rhapsody, the film? I did. Yes. It's the way you've talked about it, the way other people have talked about it, it sounds to me as like if you know the Queen story like I do so well, there yeah. seems to be a lot of really unnecessary changing of facts for yeah. creative license. And I never understood that. I mean I understood yeah. when like Freddie Mercury told the rest of the band that he had AIDS at Live Aid, which he didn't. I mean, that happened right. in, like, 87 or something instead of 85. Yes. But there's other things that I didn't understand why they changed things up. But is it is the Iron Claw sort of the same thing in the sense of some changes have to be made for time constraints or creative license, whatever it is, but some of them are unnecessary? Yeah, I, I think, for instance, uh, when they compress on Carrie's Dream, they allude uh, – to it happening either in the ring or in the, like he was getting ready to go ride his bike and then they flash forward he gets up in the morning he's on crutches and you don't see his bottom half and then he comes out around the island in the in the kitchen and it's gone uh which was accurate that the movie depicts that quite well as to where it was amputated uh but you know, the, I think the, somebody that is not familiar intimately familiar with the story I think would like to know what happened? Uh, you know, it they, they sort of le left leaves that open in the movie. But again, I you know, hour and a half, two hour movie, whatever it was. Uh, the, the same thing with where Carrie committed uh, suicide, and they couldn't put him because Chris, of course, was taken up. My understanding was it was the same gun, which is again just sort of that uh, crazy part. Um, and just a little sidebar for for Carrie, just to convey to the fans. Harry was a great guy, really, really good guy. Uh, funny, um, self-deprecating, knew uh, the business very well, and he was a beast in the gym. I credit him with really getting me to look more like a main eventer because you couldn't go to the gym with Carrie. <laughs> and I mean, you were there for 45, 50 minutes, and I mean, you were going, 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 pushing hard, heavy all the time. Uh, he, at one Christmas party, uh, my ex-wife and I were at, and he had his wife, Sandy, there, and, and he introduced us 13 times to his wife. And by the third time, she's going, hi, Troy, hi, hi Carla. <laughs> and he's not even paying attention. He just kept going on the sort of like humor side of that part of Carrie. Uh, but when he killed himself, when he committed suicide, when I heard that, it really threw me because he had spoken about that. We had, you know, when you're in cars as long as we are on the road, we'd had these conversations umpteen thousand times. And he would always say, can't do that, Shane. Can't do it. God says, can't do that, man. And so when he did, it's like I tell people, and I, and I hope the fans, when they hear me say this, it's not in any way meant to be funny. But uh, his was not a cry for help. You, know, you put a 44 Magnum to your chest and pull the trigger, you're intending to leave. And uh, the fact that he must have felt that hopeless uh, for any of my friends that have died by their own hand, uh, 
there's so many fake friends in our business, but they, but each of us have those close friends that we that we can intimate with. And uh, it, it, it breaks my heart that Carrie didn't feel that he could have reached out to a myriad of people that I'm sure he he was friends with over the years. Uh, and you, you know, just again knowing him, you, you sort of put yourself the best you can in that position and thinking that however bad it is, it can't be that bad. And uh, so for anybody out there that's listening, I you know the little PSA here that's, that begins to have these types of thoughts, please reach out to somebody, please get some help, because I can assure you things on the other side are always much, much better uh, and, and things do get better. So uh, again, that's like my little sidebar for, for Carrie. But yeah, the movie I thought they took liberties much like uh, uh, they did in Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, and some of them I don't understand why, like the glossing over the injury, uh, how he was injured, uh, putting him in front of the parents' house when, you know, it could just easily been shot somewhere else, things like that. And, and the I think the choices for the actors playing the roles. Again, I know it's unfair because I, I knew the family, uh, but it, it's for me, it was hard, like halfway through the movie, uh, you know, I, I kept telling myself, he's not Carrie, he's Kevin. You know, I had to keep telling myself that. And just a final thing, uh, the character that they that they chose, the actor that they chose to play Flair, I thought it was a very poor choice. Now, Flair is such an iconic, and, and we're going to be talking soon uh, uh, about uh, Halloween Havoc, and we were watching a Ric Flair promo, and, uh, you know, I just thought, wow, how great he was at that. Uh the guy that plays him, it's almost like a like the director wanted to take a slap at Flair for some reason because it just he doesn't convey Flair's gravitas, his uh, mastery of it. Uh, and again, that's that's hard because he's such an iconic character. But uh, again, for anybody out there that can't, hasn't had the opportunity to see it yet, I would urge to go see it if you're a wrestling fan because it really does underscore what that family went through. And, you know, you, as you're walking out of the movie, ask yourself, do curses exist or don't they? Because it's hard to look at that and think that there isn't, you know, it's uh, uh, just an incredible, incredible story uh, that that one family could go through that much. It really is good and bad. We were, as we were saying, we were talking about off air, we were talking about uh, the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson and, you know, various documentaries and whatever else. And we were talking about, you know, he drove himself crazy with the pressure of trying to compete with the Beatles and stuff like that. And then I said, and I'm sure you knew as well, you know, his dad, Murray, also used to beat the crap out of him and was not a nice father. And that can really, yes. proven time and again, how much that can affect a child's development and growing of up. Of course. Absolutely. Having said that, I'm going to bring this over to Fitz now. and uh, Fritz, sorry. This is a big question. With everything you knew through... Kerry talking about him, I imagine, and all the stories you've heard in the business, uh, discounting what you've seen in the film because artistic license. Was Fritz a bad guy? Uh, boy, I, I've asked myself that a thousand times after seeing the movie. I had met Fritz several times, but never had to work for him or never did get the chance to work for him. Uh, the movie, at the very outset of the movie, again, spoiler alerts for people, uh, it, it starts out during Fritz's career and how close he came to, to being world champion. And then as he, he's bringing his kids up into this business, he's, as, as a father, I remember hearing the story about Bruno and David, uh, San Martino. Bruno did not want David or any of his kids anywhere near the business. And uh, 
when David finally basically told him, I'm going to do it with or without you, uh, Bruno said, okay, then you do everything I tell you because he wanted to be not control David. He wanted to protect David from that. And so I can clearly see as a, thank God my kids had wanted nothing to do with the business. But I can see as a father how you would want to be, you know, like David or uh, uh, Kevin is with his kids, you know, like not lording over them or anything. But if you, you can see once that door is open, that Pandora's box, that this business has been pretty rough on a lot of people and yours included. Uh, so uh, weighing that, the way the movie portends it and the way the stories I'd heard away from the family. I never heard uh, Carrie say anything bad about his dad other than, you know, I, you didn't want to cross Fritz. You didn't want to cross dad. Uh, but they always spoke very glowingly of their dad, you know, that he looked out for them and protected them and, you know, gave them the opportunities and things. So it's, it's it, you know, that's going to be one of those age old arguments that, you know, some like vanilla and some like chocolate uh, that some fans are going to say, oh, he was a crappy dad. I would think younger people in the, that are being raised in the mores of the world today uh, would probably think, oh, what a horrible father. Those of us that grew up in the world I come from would think, and and what I've seen in wrestling would think, okay, tough dad, but also being protective of of that ilk in the business. So it's it's going to be a judgment call for each viewer. I uh, yeah, I'd really want to get your opinion on that because I mean, I obviously I was never old enough to ever meet Fritz, and from everything I see, I. How do you sort of judge that? Because I mean, so many. Of, I mean, obviously his first child, uh, sorry, his second child, Jack junior because yeah. kevin's the oldest isn't he i always forget that yeah. um that i mean he died very very young in an accident but it's like like with of the kids that made it to adulthood four of them killed themselves they've all got drug issues and stuff like that yeah. and yeah. somehow they've all sort of like reasoned to themselves that suicide is i mean this becomes like a religious debate then it's like because right. they're so yeah. they so believe that they were going to the other side and they're going to see their brothers again, that kind of thing. So, uh, but, yes. but because I know it was a really like fervently religious family as well, weren't they? Yeah. The, the movie even portends that after Carrie kills himself, he's uh, on a boat and being rowed down the river and David and Michael are both there. Like, hey bro, what's your name? So it very much did intone that. Uh, the, uh, Again, that's like you said. You can argue politics to your blue. In the, I mean, uh, religion to your blue in the face, right? Uh, the movie lays out, underscores some things that I had heard, but I never knew, never heard from the family. But the things I'd heard in the dressing rooms and in the buildings was that uh, Kevin has a world title shot in the movie, takes a hard bump and has trouble getting up, and then after that his dad pulls him out and pushes Carrie towards the world title slot. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, it was like, he was picking this one over that one and like sort of moving around again. I've never heard that from the family. Can't, can't say that that is a hundred percent accurate. I don't know. I've heard it, but uh, again, you know, my wrestling brain and then my father brain, I'm thinking like, if, you know, if my kids were coming to the business, I would certainly want to position them, not just because of chronology, but, uh, which one is going to be most successful at this at this point? Uh, so again, it's you know, one of those things. It's I would love to hear, and I'm sure he's probably spoken about it. What Kevin has said, 
Um, because I've always found Kevin to be a pretty straight shooter. Anytime I've had to speak with him and things, and that hasn't been a ton. But uh, I would like to get Kevin's take on that and hear if, if uh, uh, you know, if he's spoken about that publicly because, you know, I mean, again, it's your father, right? I mean, we only know what we know. Uh, another thing I think that needs to be added in there, the way you just set it up, is that in Dallas, because this family, you know, world, uh, uh, the wrestling uh, organization, world class, um, and everything they were doing, they were like bona fide rock stars in, in in Dallas in that area and in Texas. So there was a lot of leeway given to them that probably wouldn't have been given to somebody else's kid. And, uh, and, and Carrie included my understanding from Carrie was that uh, uh, he had explained the pills because we'd be in the car and I would say to him, Carrie, you know, you're, you got to be careful with those. You know, we, we know what happens with that. You know, and he would say, "Oh, you know." And he, when he realized, I knew his foot was gone because I would. He would never undress near any of the boys. We would drive the building together. We'd walk into the building, and Carrie would always go some opposite way away from the dressing room. And you know, you get in the dressing room, you drop your bag, you say hello to everybody, you settle in. You know, it's probably forty-five minutes to an hour before you're really done. You know, dressed, gear ready to go. Harry would go around the corner and seemingly like in less than five minutes come into the dressing room and he'd be completely dressed. He's just in blue jeans and a polo shirt or something. Now he's in, in all of his gear. And to this day, I don't know how he did that. Uh, but it seemed to me that because the argument then was it's fused, it's gone, it's fused, it's amputated. And I always thought if he doesn't want to talk about that, it's not my point to pry. And when we, like I said, we room together quite often. I would always make noise at the door coming in. And he would always be covered up. I had been, we were in Los Angeles and uh, I had gone and my brother worked in Hollywood. I'd gotten, uh, went and did a reading uh, for a role, a woman named Boots Hart, whose father had done 20,000 leagues under the sea. We went and ate and afterwards came back and I made the typical noise at the door. And when I opened the door, I froze because there was the stump hanging off the bed. Mm. So I closed the door quietly again, made noise again, two or three times. It finally went to the bathroom and made some noise and he covered up. Once he realized I knew his foot was gone, we had a lot of discussions about that because of the pills. And he said, Shane, you don't realize what a shock absorber your foot acts as. Every step I take goes into my knee, goes into my hip, goes into my back. Every step is excruciating. And uh, towards the end, he started getting popped for writing bad scripts. And typically the family would get a slap on the wrist and, you know, stern warning. And, you know, because of who they were in Dallas. Uh, the last time Carrie was told by the, uh, the judge, don't let me see you in my courtroom again. And he was, and the judge told him I was to go home, get your affairs in order. I'm sending you away. At which point Carrie went and, and took his life. Uh, you know, so there, there's a, there were a lot of other outside influences on the family, not just Fritz. Uh, so again, it's, that's going to be in the eye of the beholder. Uh, each person that watches is going to come away with something different. And I'm sure there will be some fans out there based on the movie that will think Fritz was a devil. And there will be others, uh, again, probably mostly from my generation, thinking, okay, dad looking out for his kids, maybe a bit heavy-handed. But uh, I will add this, and then and I'll shut up. Uh, I wouldn't father the way that he fathered. But again, nobody nobody in this world gets to say, well, my way is right and your way is wrong. Uh, but you know, it was uh, at times tough to watch. 
we will. I was going to shut the podcast down now. We've talked about the Iron Club. No, it's right. We've uh, we've got plenty of time for lots more news. Uh, this is one of the biggest uh, pieces of news of the last month or so, but it's quite old news as we're recording this now. Yep. Is that Tammy Sitch was sentenced to seventeen point six years, and because she's in Florida, she must do at least eighty five percent of her time before she's eligible yep. for parole and uh, i'm sure everybody knows the story i'm going to very quickly just rattle through it because i mean i've read it so many times before but march 2022 tammy sitch almost four times over the legal limit uh, for blood alcohol crashed a sedan in a high rate speed into julian Lasseter 75's car daytona beach kills him injures uh three people in the car in front of julian Lasseter's car as well I believe she was driving, I think she gave the excuse something to do with she was going getting ingredients for tacos or something like that. Anyway, that was the excuse she gave. She ends up getting arrested quite a few weeks afterwards and then she gets uh, her bail revoked on May 13th. And what else should I add? Uh, Yes, so uh, did you see any of the actual judgment itself because it was all live streamed? Yes, in fact, you can imagine that my phone started, you know, going crazy. Everybody, hey, you're watching this. And, uh, the everything you said is the way I understand it. Uh, I, I I don't want to in any way get anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not giving Tammy a get out of jail free card, but this in the business that we were in, where people get sort of this bubble wrap put around them by the business. Hey, you can go ahead and do whatever you want, and, and how many times I've you know it's, I've talked about this ten thousand times. How many times? In, I was always the last guy to take the piss test because everybody had my piss and Visine bottles <laughs> to be able to pass the test. Uh, just those sorts of things that somehow we get treated differently in, in, in many respects. Uh, I think in Tammy's case, that didn't serve well. Uh, you know, the, the young girl that I'd first met in ECW, I was aware of Tammy and met her, like, say hello, but to get to know her in ECW along with Chris. Uh, very intelligent young lady. Uh, uh, had told me at one point that she was accepted to medical school. This was at the same time that I was prepping for med school. And so I would throw things at her and she knew her stuff. So I can't say that she was accepted to medical school, but I know that she knew medicalese pretty well. Uh, for, for, you know, medicalese can get sort of daunting for, for lay people. Uh, she was pretty crisp with it. All had a fairly good head on her shoulders. Understood the business pretty well. Uh, seemed to be very much a level-headed girl. And I, I keep asking myself, through all those drunk driving incidences, uh, where, again, she was obviously treated differently. You know, most people get popped once or twice, and they're in, like, serious trouble. And she sort of kept getting this little slap on the wrist and pushed off to the side. And, again, that doesn't make it okay. But you can see from her point of view, well, I've done this before, you know, I'm, you know, I can I can do two three weeks in jail, whatever. Well, Me, I don't. I couldn't spend five minutes in a jail cell. Well, to interrupt you, actually, she has spent time in prison before for this. So you know, it's a series of DUIs, and then she probably did like six to nine months on one arrest. Yeah. Eventually, and that didn't dissuade her from carrying it on anymore. Uh, before I uh, before I uh, uh, let you go back off again, I'm going to tell you what she got. Um, so obviously the 17 and a half years she served something like 500 nod already uh, uh, with remand so that's all in the bank uh, she will serve an additional 8 years in probation including substance abuse and alcohol education orders, $10,000 fine this is the one I found funny 50 hours of community service <laughs> and uh, her driving license is gone for good now yeah. 
did you see any specifically of the expert medical uh, witness testifying on Tammy's behalf? I did not. Well, here's the. Uh, it sort of becomes a bit comedy-like a bit. So the medical <laughs> expert says. Uh, the video is far too long to show to go through it, but to wrap it up, Tammy suffers from PTSD and probably CTE from all those concussions that she was never in matches for. Uh, and then <laughs> symptoms of bipolar disorder and various disassociative episodes and, of course, borderline personality disorder. Now, after the medical examiner who was brought in to uh, testify on Tammy's behalf, is grilled by the prosecution. The prosecution basically says, how do you know all this? I mean, have you got any proof? And it's like, and then, oh, well, uh, Tammy filled in a questionnaire. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, so this guy had no knowledge of Tammy before this. So 90 minutes, either face-to-face -face or reading the questionnaire this medical examiner had with Tammy, and then the prosecution said, well, where are the MRIs and brain scans to prove... The history of Tammy's physical issues, including uh, CTE. Or, I mean, you can't with CTE, you can't definitively prove it, but you know, a history of uh, uh, head injuries and stuff. And uh, the medical guy couldn't provide anything. Incredible, yeah. So that's that's wild. Yeah, you know, it's if you're ever, if you've ever been in a courtroom at all, uh, both sides have done their homework supposedly. And uh, if you, the fact that this guy would think that th that was going to fly and that that was not going to be challenged, I mean, it's, like you said, it becomes almost like a comedy of errors at that point. Uh, and I think then to the court in general, it just looks really bad. She filled out a questionnaire and, you, mm -hmm. you know, give this, uh, uh, this sweeping medical diagnosis on. It's, it's probably uh, checkboxes of uh, disassociative uh, disorder sounds good, bipolar I mean, uh, not that she may not have some of these things. I question CTE. Right. Because, I yeah. mean, she may have been in a few, like, hair pull valet kind of matches, but how many... I remember seeing Sonny ever take a bump. Okay, not like Franny did. You know, no. not like Franny bumps. So, you know, like most of the catfight stuff, uh, I'm sure in her career, because she did have a few matches... But, you know, the CTE stuff, I think, is cumulative, long time, you know, night after night type of thing. You know, professional football players and, and now wrestlers, boxers, were, you know, starting to find out. Uh, a few days prior to this happening, I had seen Tammy at WrestleCon, maybe it was WrestleCade. She and Francine were there together, so I went over to say hello to her when we spoke. Um but we were, Franny and I were at WrestleCon in uh, uh, Dallas that year. And Franny kept, you know, texting on the phone between fans. And I said, like, who talked to you? She said, Tammy. And I said, hey, look, be careful. You know, I said, because she's going to have to, like, yeah, I heard other stories. And, and I just didn't want Franny getting, like, too close there and ended up getting yanked in. And uh, so she's going to end up killing somebody. And I said it, like, just like an off-the-cuff remark. Never in my dreams hoping or believing that, that that would even be possible because of the girl that I had known. Uh, and she said, I just said that. And she held her phone up and Tammy had responded, I'll never let that happen. This is two or three or four days prior. So Franny, of course, texted me first. That was the first I heard of it. And I was like, oh, my God, no. How? My understanding is that this time she was making quite a bit of money you know, doing the sex stuff uh, 
on uh, online. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per month. So if you wanted tacos, or I had heard that she was going looking for a boyfriend, uh, fill in that blank, whatever the reason, call an Uber, call a taxi, rent a limousine. Yeah, but, you know, I'm sure she could do it over now. Uh, like I always talk to my kids, like the, the moral for everybody listening out there is there are no do-overs. So you got to make sure you've got it right each time as much as you can. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I thought she got off light. I was expecting like 25 plus years. Mm. I don't know anything about the parameters. And, ah, and well, all. Let me tell you the parameters. So it, the uh, prosecution was recommending a maximum of, I think, somewhere around 27, maybe 27 and a bit, 27 and a half. So she got about 10 years less than was possible. So in well, that sense, you should think herself lucky. Yeah, well, especially because again, like when you know you're involved in this kind of any kind of case, uh, the first thing you do is go radio silent, right? <laughs> Regardless of what's being said out there. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've got two quotes from Tammy Sitch after the let's call it the incident. A fan asked her how fast we were going when you slammed into the poor old guy, stopped at a traffic light and killed him. His life ended for what reason? Were you on your way to a fire or drunk or high? And then Sitch responded, about how fast? Hmm, about 10 miles per hour, which it was. Since I was slowing down to a light, but the guy who she killed, Julian Lester, but he had a heart attack. And then she adds, nothing to do with my seizure. So she was claiming that she had a seizure behind the wheel and then somehow killed him at 10 miles an hour, and then he had a heart attack. Yeah. And, yeah. See, and, again, this is the stuff. If, you, if you're going to say this when you're under oath, anything you say, once you're on that stand, is open to cross-examination. Oh, no, no, no. That, well, that was on Facebook. That was public for all oh. to see. So, yeah, yeah, she was she was trying to lay the groundwork of a defense before she even saw the inside of sure. the courtroom there. Yeah. Well, my understanding, too, is that uh, from the mutual friend that she was online a day or two after like MFing people that were burying her online. I'm so glad you mentioned that. If anyone <laughs> says anything negative about me, you will be blocked and never unblocked. You don't know the real story, so don't act like you're some effing journalist when all you do is type from your mum's basement. Done. Now, uh, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's like on cue. Uh, now, uh, one more thing I would like to bring up to you, to your attention, is did you see Tammy's plea to the judge before sentencing? I did not. Now, she mentioned a few amusing things here. Uh, that's very much spinning the uh, tail to her thing. Now, uh, Tammy's statement was focused mostly on herself, her woe-is-me life. I mean, I, I'm sure I mentioned somewhere, it's like, them beautiful white women, they just have it so difficult, don't they? At all. <laughs> yeah. um, everything's everybody else's fault, and most laughably of all, that somehow Chris Candido is to blame for her downward spiral by not only getting her out of medical school, apparently that was his fault, but then subsequently and selfishly dying in 2005. Now, Tammy also claimed that her life went off the rails in 2005 and not beforehand, uh, that she said in, in court. And, I mean, you know the story of Tammy. I mean, she was fired from the WWF in 98 for drugs, ECW in 1999, I, at least partially for drugs. I know she was suspended or something like that. And then WCW, I think she was let go for drugs as well. So she's completely yeah. changing the timeline to fit basically a yeah. real-life tragedy of Chris Candido to her benefit. Yeah, look, I, I guess we're in that position. 
you got to try to throw whatever crap to the wall and see what sticks, right? Mm-hmm. It, it seemingly has worked in some degree because if they were looking for 27 years and she got 10 less. Uh, look, I, I, I say this all the time. I don't ever want to hurt myself in a car accident or anybody in the car with me, but I sure as hell even less want to hurt anybody else. And in this day and age, I mean, it's just a, the world, I've, I've made a bazillion stupid mistakes in my life. Uh, thankfully, none of them ever hurt anybody else. You know, and I, I, that's the part when you try to like allege that this guy had a heart attack or I had a seizure or whatever. Uh, again, best to, to just be sit back. I don't care what people are saying online. You're going to throw yourself on a sword at this point. And again, I'm sure if Tammy had the chance to do a do-over, she would do it. Unfortunately, there's not, that opportunity doesn't exist. And there's another human being dead because of it and other people injured because of just after all those other DUIs. Like you said, that that didn't teach you a lesson. Well, you put me in a jail cell for five minutes. That would cure me of whatever, whatever you're yelling at me about. Uh, so... It's just a tragedy all around. It's a tragedy this family will never uh, be able to undo. Uh, she will at some point, if it's 85%, I don't know how old Tammy is now, but she'll be near her 70s. And She's about 50 now, so if she gets out, she'd be, if she gets out, she'd be about 65 if she did the whole bid, 66, something like that. So, I mean, you know, the business has now gone behind. But I hope if Tammy hears this, I hope she hears what I'm saying with this. This is the, you know, there are no do-overs, there's no time machines. We can't go back and undo stuff. But in whatever way she could turn this positive, uh, to go out there and speak to younger people about drinking and driving or today smoking pot because it's legal so many places, being inebriated in any way and getting behind the wheel of a car. Uh, I always tell my kids, think of the worst thing that can happen and assume it will. And then do everything you can to avoid that, uh, because you know, like I, full disclosure, we were younger, drinking and driving. You know, in the business, we were always you know slapping a beer down or something in the car, never getting you know sloppy drunk or anything. But thank God, we never had that kind of an incident. And uh, you know, the world is where it is now, and we have to live in the world as it is today. So thank God that happened then and not now, and thank God we didn't hurt anybody. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I think this would be a morality tale for, for anybody out there because, you know, Tammy was literally at the upper echelons, right? I mean, you know, she was that first huge diva in the WWF, uh, you know, had, had just an unbelievably beautiful girl and a very intelligent girl. And what could have been from that, you know, you take all that DNA and throw it all in, in a blender, what could have been the outcome of that? And instead, uh, you know, yes, Chris Dye, I'm sure, had an impact on her. But, you know, there, there were things going on before that, that that were pretty questionable and pretty heady. Uh, I, but I, she didn't have a lot of time to think about it. So hopefully that brilliant young girl that I knew when I first met, hopefully she can figure out a way to take this and turn it into whatever kind of positive, hopefully keeping somebody else from going down that same avenue and having to endure the same uh, punishment and, and, you know, watch on your life and everything else. Uh, r- really just all the way around, really sad and completely 
avoidable uh, ending of a, of a freedom in your life. It's a, it's about as bad as it gets I, I, from, from my perusal. Yeah, there's a completely needless risk at any time so uh we i know um before we started this i said i was going to say right we've got so much news here there and everywhere we're going to skip quite a few of these and i'm actually going to bring up this one uh kenny omega is out indefinitely now uh he has been uh in fact actually he uh, had to go to the hospital he got there just in time he was putting off getting checked out he was in a lot of pain his tummy had a lot of bloating he thought maybe he messed up on his diets and just general aches and pains and stuff like that got to the uh, got to the hospital where they diagnosed him with diverticulitis oh so uh most famously in the wrestling world brock lesnar suffered with it when he was ufc champion and there's other people oh. like jim ross and vince mcmahon and stuff like that i don't know if it's always dietary that causes diverticulitis but uh most yeah so uh, explain explain diverticulitis to us for the lay person and why it's so oh. agonizing and dangerous so uh, a good friend of mine growing up had across the yard, uh, uh, she had diverticulitis and uh, she described in your intestines, uh, they will get like a divot or like a, an opening where food passing through will get stuck there. And then it sits and sort of just rots out. And then that, of course, begins the inflammatory response in the body and becomes quite quite painful and can be can cause a uh, a blockage and enough of it stops there and any of that you know when the plumbing's not working uh, correctly can be ex- life-threatening so uh and of course when that starts to rot then you get like bacteria and things that come off of it so that's a very serious condition i i hope uh i don't think there's any cure for it uh uh, oftentimes surgery they'll try to like maybe remove that piece or whatever but once you start doing that you, you know uh, having intestines removed and things, it really becomes a, a life-altering type of, of ordeal. Kenny's young enough uh, and in good enough shape that hopefully he'll be able to get whatever treatment and move beyond it. But uh, I had said when he left a couple of years ago, and then it was announced that he had, what, like 12 surgeries or something? I mean, like some crazy number of surgeries. And I said then, and I hoped I was wrong, that it's going to be tough for him to come back. You know, having a surgery or, or a few surgeries is really difficult. You know, to get yourself back in the shape and uh, into the mindset and uh, you know, bump shape, what we call bump shape, where your body gets sort of conditioned to taking the bumps and things. Uh, having that kind of surgery that early on in life, you know, like in his mid thirties, is a really uh, tough thing to overcome. Uh, you know, better medicines today, better uh, uh, medical uh, uh, techniques, better dietary stuff uh, will all work in his favor, of course. But, you know, it's uh, at some point you have to begin to, to look down the road. And, uh, you know, the way I always tell it to friends is that, you know, I, I had kids when I was older. And so uh, I didn't want to be that old dad that couldn't, you know, go out and throw the ball with your kid or whatever. Tell them out there playing Nerf guns and stuff with them back in the day. Uh, uh, there's a life after wrestling. And, and uh, you know, you have to think about that. And it's, it's hard when we're young and invincible. But I think Kenny's had enough of a taste now of the, uh, you know, the injuries and the, the amassing of those injuries and, and, and what that caused. And now this. Uh, hopefully, you know, if he wants to get back in the ring, he can get to, get to that point. Uh, but... 
you know, it's, it's time to start to think about athlete, you know, moving down the road. Uh, Someone was just telling me about uh, uh, Bobby Root and that he's working behind the scenes at WWE. Great guy to have back there. Uh, I'm just perplexed as to why he was never world champion because he was a stallion. He was a stud, uh, is a stud. Uh, but, you know, for Kenny, you know, the same type of thing. We have to all make our own decisions and how we're proceeding and moving forward in the business. And, uh, uh, you know, hopefully for him, wherever, whatever it is he wants to do, but I think he can bring a lot of wealth of experience and behind there, you know, and, and run, you know, be able to run his life after that and not be, you know, we, we've all seen, you know, some of the guys in our business that are just really hobbled up and, you know, crippled up and banged up and have all kinds of medical issues uh, and far too many dropping dead young. Uh, but I hadn't heard that about him. I, I wish him the best with that. It's a, but listen to your doctors because that's a very serious condition although so many people walk around with it. Next on the agenda is, well, actually, I just want to mention this as well, is that this sort of couldn't really have happened at a worse time for AEW because MGF has just gone out injured. Adam Cole, who's just been revealed as like the main heel of AEW, is still injured and will be for quite a few months, apparently. Uh, Daniel Bryan's injured, even though he's still wrestling. Kenny Omega's now out. Chris Jericho, uh, fans, you know, with recent uh, allegations and stuff like that have come out uh, uh, been pointed to him let's say uh yeah. that we don't know if he's going to be accepted in the main event at any point soon well uh i'm going to leave the chris jericho stuff because there's there's very little to actually go on so we'll sort of wait for if there are any more accusations or if there's a pattern of stuff like that we'll we'll leave that right. there for now um killer khan which i told you about yeah. this beforehand and yeah. i don't know if it's my accent that you just can't hear me say k <laughs> or whatever but i think what do you think i'm saying like gilly or something I, I thought you were saying Gilly Khan, like you're like a, a sister or something to, to Tony Khan or maybe Nick Khan. Gilly Khan. No, no, no. It's the father of Tony Khan, Killer Khan. Uh, he uh, sadly passed away at the age of 76. So he left the WWF and the wrestling business just completely done uh, in 1987. He was just on the tail end of a WWF run. He was working with Hogan a lot. Maybe he made enough because he, he worked with Hogan a lot on the house show. So maybe he just made enough to just retire and then he became a restaurateur and a bar owner in Tokyo with various different establishments and and he worked the front he worked at the front you know people would go up to him and shake his hand and ask for a photograph for a signature or something so it was uh, it was good stuff uh, he was serving customers when it wasn't so much a heart attack but it was essentially his a just an artery just basically just went boom just exploded. Yeah. Yeah. Aortic abdominal aneurysm. Yeah. yeah. It, it was all, yeah. It just, it went completely, it just went completely. He was pronounced dead at the hospital. Um, yeah. I don't know if you ever met Killer Khan. I know you're in the WWF in 86. Uh, so maybe you'll have to answer this more as a fan. But uh, Killer Khan, did you ever meet him and your predominant memories of him? Had never met him. Uh, my memories of him were. Uh, the, the first I remember hearing of him, he had been in the WWF uh, briefly and was in a match with Andre and broke Andre's ankle. There's the, the story that they spun. I don't know if that was actually something he had done to him or whatever it wasn't. No, no, he, he broke his ankle. Andre broke his ankle getting out of bed. Okay, well, there and, you go. And they, and they said on TV that Killer Khan did it in Rochester, New York. So whatever yeah, reason, go. it was in Rochester, but it never happened. Yeah, and it made like he was like suddenly the big heel, right? Like he was this you know big guy, and uh, 
his look and everything, the way that he wrestled. Uh, you know, at that time, the Americans, we American audience, hadn't seen a ton of Jeff. Of course, Toratanaka had been over and, and uh, Fuji, and you know, there, there had been Saito, uh, but he suddenly was this like massive guy and probably just in the right place at the right time if that's if that's what happened to Andre's leg. And then they took that around the loop. I remember my dad taking me to Pittsburgh Civic Arena to see that match. And it was pretty much Andre just beating him up and he would get a little bit of heat on him. Uh, but I, he, I do remember meeting him. So it must have been in those early years of going up to w, w, WWF to, to get the experience. Uh, it was quiet. Nice guy, but quiet. You know, he would walk around and you know, shake your hand and say hello and, and uh, off. I don't think he understood the language very well. Uh, is, is the way I sort of took it. Uh, but uh, for that brief moment uh, there in those mid-70s, because of the you know the alleged injury to Andre, you know, Andre up to that point had been sort of like impervious, right? He's oh, well, a big guy. Well, this was like 82, like around 81, oh, so 82, that, something that like that. Yeah, so, so Andre yeah. was like impervious for a decade plus at this point. Correct, yes. And, uh, you know, suddenly somebody had actually made him look human. Right and 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 injured him. So again, it's it's funny because I had never heard that story. I didn't know if it was or wasn't. But uh, what, what is it? Dusty used to say, "Make chicken salad or chicken shit, baby." You know, and <laughs> so you broke your leg getting out of uh, bed today. We're gonna make some money for Killer Con here. I remember when I was uh, maybe just coming into a teenager, and on Sky Sports we used to get for whatever reason 1987's Wrestling Challenge, and Killer Con would always be on it. I remember just. I always remember looking at him because he was, he was playing the big Mongolian character with the big pointy yeah. hat kind of thing, and he was. Yeah. He definitely had TV appeal. He he, yeah. he definitely stood out even with the massive, uh, you know, humanity every week. Killer Khan definitely sure. stood out, and he always like hunched over and had a mystical yes. sort of thing going on for him. So yeah, he uh, when when we and I think I've talked about this before on our, on our show or maybe your previous show. Uh, when we, I was a senior in high school and senior class president, so we had to raise money. So we had, through Dominic, had gotten us a show from the WWF in the New Brighton High School. Uh, Killer Khan was on that. Killer Khan wrestled, uh, it was uh, King Kong Mosca. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Killer Khan wrestled Ivan uh, uh, Putsky, I believe. Uh, fabulous moves on the show. Uh, Andre was on the show, and Andre had gone out during the Killer Con match, and there was like the, sort of the standoff thing. Uh, but you know, it, again, even there, like we were in the dressing room, me and my friends, we were the first match on the show that night, and uh, I think they were all coming out to watch these young punks, you know, get in the ring and put on a pretty good match. And Con uh, was there, as I remember now. Uh, again, quiet, polite, quiet. Uh, and I had not heard of his passing. So for his family and his fans, uh, uh, you know, condolences. Uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that he had that you know, different life after the wrestling business. Interesting. Yeah, I was hoping to meet him this year. I'm going to Japan. I've already booked it in April. I was hoping because I'm going to Tokyo. I was hoping to meet him, but I, I will not be able to. So that'll be a sad thing. Yeah. Uh, we shall move on now. Goldberg, Bill Goldberg, calls Vince McMahon. Naughty, naughty word. So I'm going to uh, give you the full quote and you tell me. It seems quite tame when I read it out in this sense, but uh, you tell me You tell me if uh, Vince deserves this. 
Vince is like Dana White, Goldberg said. He's the big boss and he makes everything happen. And in all honesty, he gave me the opportunity to put my wife and son on the front row and gave me the ability to perform again in front of them. So this is when he was come back, like in 2017, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I owe him everything until we went to Saudi Arabia. And he asked me to put Roman Reigns over and I had COVID. I remember calling him from my house and said, listen, here is the deal. I'll do it if you give me a retirement match. I did what Vince asked. As a performer, I was 56 years old. As a human being, you're conscious about how you look in a bathing suit, especially two months prior to being in that bathing suit you couldn't work out because you had COVID. I put myself in a horribly shitty situation to get what I, uh, what I wanted to, uh, is where I wanted to, but to satiate him and give him what he wanted. Problem is, he never held up his end of the bargain. Vince is a piece of shit as far as I'm concerned. Well, there you go. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised a bit because I, you know, Bill rarely talks that way. Like we speak publicly about somebody, uh, yeah, really polite. But I think he he puts that in context quite well, right? You know, the, you know, a guy that's the whole character was based off of body. Uh, you know, suddenly you're putting yourself out there at a point where you probably shouldn't be. Uh, you know, but the the part about not, Vince not reciprocating the deal, big shocker. I mean, how many? You can just take that segment out and plug that into like ninety nine percent of the other interviews that people don't know about Vince. I, I, my thinking on Vince is like when I saw the stuff from Endeavor, and you and I had spoken the last time we recorded, is I, I was surprised they cut him loose that quickly. My belief in this, people that I've spoken to, is that everybody's of the belief that something is going to come of this FBI investigation. Um, you know, it's uh, without getting into the politics and stuff, the FBI is sort of like way out on the limb over here right now with the, the public sentiment. And, uh, you know, we're, again, where the world is in, and the stuff that we know, like when I found out that, uh, you know, after Vince had allegedly paid the money back, uh, you know, basically stealing from the company when he, and then paying it back, that okay, it's it's good. The money's back in the company. That makes the ledger right. But <laughs> you stole from a publicly traded company, mm. you know. So it, 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 not so easy to wipe that away. Allegedly, do, do you uh, do you think that the FBI, uh, the federal government, is interested in Vince because of the NDAs he signed, or because of business impropriety in one way or another? Part of the NDAs, probably the fact that there's a relationship with a, a certain other former president, um, uh, probably all of the above. But I think the biggest part is, I mean, certainly equaled all of those things, is when he won the case, the steroid trial. If you recall, he comes out on the front steps, takes the neck brace off because he didn't need to put on airs anymore for the, for the court, and then says, quote, I'm Vincent fucking McMahon. You don't poke the federal government bear that way. Uh, like I always tell people, understanding government and teaching it. Uh, yeah, people come and they have careers and they retire and they move on. So it's not just so easy because the next, if that person is the person that should have gotten you and didn't, they're going to, as this young kid James comes in and say, hey, here's a file I want to keep an eye on, right? And 30 years from now, you're going to pass that file on to somebody. Uh, just take the high road. If, you, if you're for the, the federal government was like 97% of its cases. If you're one of those fortunate 3%, take that as a gimme, as a gift from Santa Claus or somebody upstairs and take the high road and move on. So I'd say this part of the law, the NDAs, 
the, uh, the, the, the stolen money, uh, even though paid back allegedly, um, the, the NDAs and, and certainly playing into this to some degree somewhere is an FBI that was a little bit butthurt from not winning that case uh, and Vince rubbing their nose in it. But yeah, the people that I'm speaking to are of the school belief that something will be coming of that. I'm a big fan of Bill Goldberg. A lot of people watching or some people really aren't. Uh, but, you know, horses for courses and that kind of thing, I really, really think a lot of Bill. I've never had the pleasure of talking to him. You've you've spent a good nearly two years in WCW with him. I'm sure you talked to him and wrestled him, in fact, uh, many times. From what you know about Bill, does he take the business too personally? Because he seems to really, even in you know his late 50s now, Something yeah. that happens in the wrestling business, it really seems to get him right in the heart, and he has a, you know, he he, he, he can't in the sense of you know when you say take the high road, I'm not saying take yeah. the high road, but he can't ignore it. He has to, uh, you know, yeah. he takes it personally. Uh, Bill's a great guy. Uh, I have nothing but but good things to say about Bill. Uh, when I wrestled him one time, we, we were in the ring one time together. There, uh, he came to me and. You know, so you know, what do you, what do you, I got a couple of ideas and he starts to open up on those ideas and he stopped himself and he said, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Shane Douglas. And he said, I, you know, I'll I, I I listen to you. Some along those lines. And, and so I, I really respected that. Uh, Bill, my take on Bill is two things here I think that need to play in. Uh, Bill is very much a hard on sleep type of guy. Uh, he does take things personally, and I think the reason he does is because everything he does is to, uh, to, to the umpteenth degree. He wants to be as good at that as he can be. He came into our business quite late. Uh, I guess the story goes after Kevin had seen him bouncing somewhere, uh, Kevin Nash. And when you come into those dressing rooms, it doesn't, I don't care how big and tough and physically imposing you are. Uh, there, it's, you know, when you're young in that dressing room, you're very well aware unless you're delusional, of what you don't know. When you're watching these other guys go out there and have these easy, you know, what seemingly was really, really easy uh, matches, uh, effortless looking, you know, and, and so he, I think he was always trying to live up to that. You know, he'd come from this great football career and, you know, coming into the dressing room where he's really not well-versed at all in. Uh, I always found Bill to be incredibly respectful, personable, uh, never off-putting or nose-in-the-air type. Uh, so I have nothing bad to say about him. The fact that he said that, I think he did, you know, newsflash, promoters lie. <laughs> and promoters named Vince McMahon lie proficiently. Um, I, I'm surprised that he that he's saying it out loud because it's sort of like the, you know, we, we chuckle at it when we, we hear that because it's almost quaint, right, that, that he expected him to live up to it. But yeah, I, I think that's probably why Bill went public and he realized, you know, I, I like how he thanked Vince and you know, said, hey, you gave me the opportunity to wrestle in front of my son and, and my wife, uh, you know, and, and then lowers the boom, you know, a lot more tactfully than other people I know would do it, right? But uh, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've got nothing but good things to say about Bill. And I know that a lot of people, fans in our business have certain opinions and people in the business have certain opinions. I've never had cause to say anything bad about about Bill. I've always found him to be professional, uh, respectful, polite, personable. Uh, so, you know, it's it's just sort of funny, like, for me to hear, like, like the, the Bill that I know 
I, I would, I, if you'd have told me like what person and gave me a list of 10 names said this, Bill would probably have been the last person I picked on that list. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, it's a little sad, it's sad epitaph here. The fact that we hear this so often, you know, when I first started going public with stuff, they were like, oh, you're in the kitchen, balls cut. You're like, you know, I don't care. I'm, I've always tried to speak truthfully to stuff. And, you know, for better for you, look, if you dislike me because I say the truth, uh, you know, then sorry, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you know, in my business, there's far too many guys that come out. Oh, he's a great guy. What do you call me? He's a fantastic guy. He's a great guy. And, and then something happens. Then they go, oh, you know, uh, there was a the, you know the famous story about uh, at least infamous in Pittsburgh, uh, Mark Madden, who had been a big uh, Ric Flair fan, right? Nate called Nate. Nate's this. Nate's that. I said, look, Mark. Mark I'm not telling you who to have friends, be friends, with whatever. I was telling you. He will stab you in the back the first chance he needs to. And, oh, no, not Nate's, not Nate's. Well, then we had that little falling out, right? It took 30 years, but it, but, but it came out. You know, leopards can't change their spots. Uh, zebras don't change their stripes. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's common. But, but now, after all these years, you, you hear this repeatedly from people, right? Uh, both about Flair and now about Vince. Um, and I, I don't think that's just a... Can't all be sour grapes, right? There's this litany, uh, almost routine thing that happens, and then you hear the stories. Hey, there might this screw might be turned a little different, or that nail might not be there, but it's the same wall bill, right? It's the same story over and over again, and I think that speaks volumes. Next on, and I don't know if you ever even talked to this chap because it seems that so many people never did. Uh, Lance Storm told a story very recently that when he went back to WWE for a few months just before COVID hit, uh, he was doing the backstage producer agent role. And he said that even though he heard this next fellow on his headset occasionally, he never met Kevin Dunn, the director-producer, basically the second most important person in WWE, WWF, for the best part of 40 years now. So Kevin Dunn is officially done with WWE as of 31st of December. Now we can talk about the politics of why he may be gone or why otherwise, but we don't know. <laughs> so there was a, a memo sent out by Nick Khan saying after 40 years, Kevin Dunn helped build WWE, etc. He joined before WrestleMania 1. Uh, there's stuff about other kids his age were playing Pac-Man and Kevin Dunn was uh, you know, working on the road and breaking his back to help build our company. And just how grateful uh, officially uh, the, the WWE and everybody else is to have Kevin done for that many years and now he's riding off into the sunset uh first off any memories at all of kevin dunn that you know of did you actually speak to him at all work with him yes yeah oh really yeah he seems almost like he seems like almost like a mythical figure that barely anyone ever saw backstage but maybe in the mid 90s he was a bit more personable Uh, well i wouldn't go that far uh (laughs) he he was uh when i was there as dean douglas and and i'm sure i met him what, what, what was his first year, you say, 91? His first year was before WrestleMania one, so 80, okay. 84, I think. Yeah, okay. I was saying that I, I, in my memory, it seems that, that I remember him being around in 90 when I was there, 90, 91. Yeah, yeah uh, he will be. But when we were launching the Dean Douglas character, uh, if you recall, I, I, would, I told you that for the first several months, I was just going to the studio on Sundays and recording video uh, uh, vignettes. And... Uh, he was one of the people that when Vincent walked out of the room, 
said he liked the way that I had done that last one better, as everybody in the room did that day. And I'm not, I mentioned 199%, every single person, hair, makeup, lights, cameras, uh, uh, Jim Ross, uh, Michael Hayes, Stan Lane, uh, Mike uh, Dunn, uh, Kevin Dunn, uh, they were all there, uh, all said the same thing. And as soon as Vince came in, oh, we, we, we reviewed Vince. I, I found personally in the in the bit that I worked with him uh, doing those vignettes in that kind of an episode where the fans are going to remember talking about that. Uh, I found him to be very uninspiring. Uh, working with you know the likes of Dusty Rhodes or Bill Watts or Paul Heyman, uh, these very it's renowned my stories about these guys. I can tell you the bad side of these guys. But I also, you know, the, the yin and yang, I, I will also give them credit for the things that I learned from them. And uh, I can honestly say I really never learned anything from Kevin Dunn. Uh, you know, and working that closely with somebody, we would do five, six, seven of these vignettes per weekend. And, uh, you know, for somebody that was supposedly so hands-on and everything, I saw none of that whenever, whenever I was there. Now, that's not to say that he wasn't prodigious in other areas and with other talents. Uh me personally, I had seen very little. He was just sort of somebody there taking up space. He never once, as I recall, came in and said, hey, maybe try doing it this way instead of that way, or hey, don't forget to look that way. There was never any of that kind of hands-on. Well, considering Kevin. he's a director as well. <laughs> you think yeah. he... So so would he, when you were doing these vignettes, would you would he actually be there overseeing them in some portion, or would he not yes. even be there? He'd be there? Yeah, he'd be there, yes. Okay. Yes in the room and uh again when you're launching a character regardless of where they plan on that character being uh vince laid it out to me this was going to be the top heel position so i would have thought a lot of hands-on with guys like kevin and i'm sure he probably gave me some direction somewhere in my memory i, I can't honestly say that i recall him doing that and and those things that you know for great directors or great promoters or bookers uh it sticks out in your head it may stick out because of negative or positive but it sticks out that you know the the the, the interaction and, and uh like for instance since i remember one time coming to me and saying uh you know and using a word uh uh i'm trying to think of the exact word I was using a general word that was used for things. And for people, the word would be personable, um, uh, uh, personify or epitome. That was the word. I was using epitomizing and Vince corrected. And from that day forward, I've never forgotten that. It's always stuck in my head. Uh, the impact that that kind of stuff can have might, might be seemingly innocuous at that moment in time. But those great directors, you know, you watch these, you know, these great actors and stuff talking about like the Scorsese's or, you know, these different great directors and you'll hear them give this glowing thing that they've learned from these people that they, you know, and, and working underneath them. And I can honestly say that there was never anything that Kevin done for me had ever done that, that came in that seemed impactful on my career or something that I hadn't forgotten. Uh, it, it, he seemed almost subservient to Vince. Like he would wait for Vince to weigh in and he would weigh in in the few times that he would. Uh, and, and that was sort of like the ongoing joke in the dressing room at the time was, yeah, the director that doesn't direct. I remember hearing people say that all the time. Uh, you know, and at the time, I think I was taking it more like he gives me, 
he's giving me the benefit of the doubt. Like he knows I can do a promo, so he's just staying back out of it. But I can honestly say, and I don't, I don't mean to be mean on it, when I say uninspiring, I can't recall a single time that Kevin Dunn came to me and said, hey, Dean, hey, Shane, hey, Troy, try this instead of that, or let's go for this or whatever. A very, very lackadaisical hands off. Did you know at the time how important he was in the company? or Because he oh, yeah. basically was second in command, essentially. Yes. Yeah, yeah it was... Uh, uh, there was a, you know, a less than... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A less than favourable uh, nickname that was pretty, pretty often used, which was Chipmunk. You have seen Chipmunk. Is Chipmunk around? Uh, and I think when you give somebody a kind of name, like there was a flounder in high school, right? Flounder is not the kind of like nickname. Hell, I would get named Flounder someday, <laughs> you know. It's uh, and I and I don't think Chipmunk is 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 uh, is another one of those. But he, uh, yeah, it's I, I'm again, I'm sure just the fact that he was there that long and everything. A lot of fans watching. Oh, yeah, but he was responsible for this or that. I'm unaware of any of that stuff, but I'm sure there. It must be there. He wouldn't have been there that long. Now we're going to talk about Dean Malenko. Now Dean uh, most recently has been working in AEW as a backstage producer, and he has undergone, according to Jim Ross, successful surgery. So Jim Ross recently made mention on his podcast that Dean Malenko recently had brain surgery to help improve his day-to-day life. Uh, this is the quote: "I saw Dean Malenko. Malenko's had some health issues. I saw him there, and he had brain surgery, and it stops his shakes from the Parkinson's, and it has." Uh, this is a quote, so it's a, and it has, he's had the surgery, he's such a sweetheart of a guy. So I didn't realise you could have brain surgery to alleviate symptoms of Parkinson's. So uh, we obviously know about the shakes. What else about Parkinson's is, a, is, is characteristic of that disease? Uh, once uh, the, once you, your muscles begin to tire, which is quite frequent because they're always active, uh, you, you can get spa- really horrible spasms, uh, the tick and, and you know, the flailing types of things, the uncontrolled, uh, the loss of control over muscular contraction. Uh, one, I'm not saying this is what he had done. I'm guessing uh, the last that I recall in my studies, they could go and do uh, put an electrode in, uh, do a deep brain stimulation and uh, to the cerebral cortex, to the, to the center of the brain. And that sort of rewires it a hair and help knocks it down. If that's, I, I take Jim Ross at his word and, and what he's talking about, uh, and I'm really happy to hear that for Dean. I, you know, you don't want to see anybody have to endure, you know, these these horrific things like that. And uh, uh, you know, Dean is uh, much quicker witted than I am, and so it was always fun to be around because he always, you know, just makes something. You had to listen closely. He might he might hit you with a zinger if you weren't paying attention. Uh, and Francine and I were together at the ECW arena with the, again with the pandemic a year or two ago, and Dean was there, and he was having a rough time that day. Uh, but still, sharp as attack. You know, he he's one of those guys that here's a joke and he can tell ten thousand more. I can't remember a joke to save my life. And you know, he, you have to always listen because he's always just going and going and going. Uh, but I'm happy, really happy to hear that for him uh, because uh, again, like that's you know. As we age, I can tell you, it's it's. A, I, I'm starting to realize more of my dad's words. It's hell to get old, and I used to like Cavaliers. I was better than dying young, Dad. You know the alternative. 
but you know, you start to learn. I'm thinking, oh, this ache in my back. Where'd that come from? Oh, my knee hurts. These little aches and pains, things that are just part of it, or that. You know, like this, you know, like a really life-altering type of thing. Uh, so, and, and I'm guessing that, that you know, from the time that I was studying and prepping for med school, that they probably come up with a world more of of, of therapies and therapeutics for that. So. I have to give him a call. I didn't know that he had that. I'll, I'll, I'll check in with him and, uh, and you know, and let our fans know uh, because he, uh, good guy, uh, and he's been one of those guys that's been around in the backstage areas like WWF, WWE, uh, short while WCW, now AEW. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear from Dean. I'll reach out to him and find out. And for hell of a nice uh, New Year's present. Yes, uh, Ross also further added, so if you can add to this, uh, Dean is one of those unsung guys that's such an MVP at AEW because of his guidance, his coaching. He encourages the talents to bring with them to him what they want to do, and then he helps them. He contributes. It's teaching. All that is coaching, and he's really, really good at it. Nice. Sound right? Yeah. Excellent. Good to hear. It's, it's uh, yeah, I, again, I'm sure... It, there's so many people in those dressing rooms, right? And we, we get, come on here and we talk about it, it you know, in a span of time. Uh, but you know, the, again, I, I can't even begin to imagine uh, even having a career if I hadn't had all of those people, not just the guy that trained us, but all those people that were in, impactful. I learned stuff e- even now getting in the ring. I, I still learn things on a nightly basis. And that, for me, that's like, I, I need to intellectually stimulate myself. I can't just, Okay, let's just go out there and paint by color or paint by number. Uh, I want to learn. I'm always looking for new stuff. I'm constantly reading and digging into different things. Uh, that's what keeps my brain active and keeps it from being ho hum just another day. And uh, those guys, that you know, the stories they can tell and probably do tell. Uh, in Dean's case, <laughs> he's a pretty big storyteller. Uh, but you know, there's a there's a lot to be learned and weaned from those guys. It really is. I think we've got either two or three stories left in us, and then we're going to shut down this podcast now. Uh, we teased the Ric Flair story. How could we not? Ric Flair preferred WWE when Vince McMahon ran it. So here is the quote. I like the fact that the kids make a lot of money. That's the most important thing. Unlike myself, there are more con- uh, they are more conscious because of the people around them and the culture being different of taking care of their money, paying taxes on time, stuff like that. I said this on Dutch's show, Shane, as well. Like, I didn't realise that the culture of not paying your taxes on time was different in the 70s, <laughs> 80s, 90s, tw- 2000s, 2010s. But yeah, <laughs> that, that was just me. Um, it's really corporate now. I dress the part, but I could never think like that. I don't have the patience. AEW, very professional. It's an easier pace. There are politics everywhere in the world, but the WWE right now is very political. And then asked why he thinks WWE is political, and but he doesn't mention AEW because he's working for AEW, I imagine. I don't know. The fight for control. Everybody wants to run WWE. I like the way Vince ran it. For better or worse, everybody knew where they stood and more than they do now. Social media is out of control with stories. You don't even know what's real anymore. So Rick Flair <laughs> saying that it's more political now that Vince McMahon has gone and Triple H is in charge. Uh, I'd find that hard to believe. Uh, I, full disclosure, I haven't been in a WWE dressing room in several years, uh, but I'd find that hard to believe. I, I, you know, whether it's Hunter or Endeavor or uh, Emmanuel, um, you know, somebody is 
Nobody pays nine billion bucks for something that goes, hey, here's the keys, take it out for a drive. Right. <laughs> there, there's and I'm guessing like today, and I just I'll get on my soapbox for a second, I promise it will and then get off. Uh, no, dude, uh, that's that's what we're here for, man. So <laughs> stand atop of it proud and, and yell out, <laughs> do it. I stand behind everything I say on, but uh last year there was an incident at school with my son. Uh we investigated, went through but bottom line, uh we ended up having a meeting with the administrators and this to say it's an effort, like you'd, you'd rather get hit with a, uh, you know, baseball bat 10 times than, than, than going to it's painful. Hey, these people lie right to your face. They'll look at you and act like you're stupid and can't follow and understand. And it's just so infuriating. And so at one point I looked at them because my ex-wife had said something in the meeting uh, about them talking to our son privately about anything disciplinary and said, uh, you know, we're both educators. Uh, we're not trying to make anybody's job harder, but it seems like when he talks to you, uh, he says one thing and then something else happens. So we don't want you guys talking to him unless one or both of us are here. And a few seconds later, the principal tried to get cute, I guess, and said, well, you know, we understand, but there may be times I went, like we'll stop it right there. I said, maybe you didn't understand, so I'll clarify for you. She just told you that you don't have her permission to talk to our son pretending to anything disciplinary unless she or I or both she's here, I'm here, or we're both here. And I said, I want to point out to you your mission statement. I love doing this because none of these places they write all this ethereal. We're gonna shit unicorns of rainbows and it's going to be perfect and we're going to run the perfect organization i said i want you you and you to go back and read your mission statement i've had she's had nothing to do with that mission statement i want the three of you to read your mission statement and then look us in the face and tell us that you've abided by your mission statement lived up to your mission statement to our son all of a sudden three blanks three blank stares like oh what's I think about the mission statement, right? That all these places live and die by. And, and I'm sure Endeavor has their mission statement. I'm sure WWE has theirs and every other one out there today. And I'm here to tell everybody out there that not a single one of them live up to it. It's, it's just words on a page. It's a bunch of mumbo jumbo blowhard bullshit. And, uh, but you can strangle them with it because they put it on the paper. It's, you know, when you put the mission statement down, that's their philosophy, supposedly. Nothing better than choking somebody with their own words. Uh, I don't know how to follow up with that then. Uh, Rick, <laughs> uh, so, uh, well, it's, it's all about politics, I guess. But, uh, yeah, as you said, you weren't really in the locker room. You've not been in a locker room for a while, so you don't know the coach yeah. since Triple H. I can only there, imagine. But, yeah. yeah. I can only imagine. But, look, I, I'm, like, I think you nailed the, head, the, you know, the nail right on the head. Rick is now working with AEW, so suddenly the politics are better in mm, AEW. No. And next week, when he goes back to WWE, they'd be better there. It's uh, uh, just like every Intercontinental Champion is the greatest Intercontinental Champion. Of course, <laughs> of course it is. Of course, it is. Uh, we we may end up on this one because this is quite amusing. I always like when uh, two wrestlers long retired just have a beef with each other after twenty five years, and they start airing it on social media. So it always makes me laugh. And, oh, it's just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this one is Booker T uh, has been threatening a defamation lawsuit against Ahmed Johnson. 
So last year, uh, apparently the latter, Ahmed Johnson, tried to spread false narratives about his time in prison, his being Booker T's. While speaking on a podcast, Ahmed Johnson challenged Booker T to a debate after all their issues. He also claimed that he might reveal an alleged secret about Booker T's time in jail if Booker T keeps insulting him. So... Here's a quote. I would love to come on the show. I am, This is Ahmed Johnson talking about, I think, and have a debate with him or whatever they call it. I'm all game for that. Come on, podcast people. Let's say that we got to say let's get it settled once and for all, either way, once or another. I can barely read this. It's grey on black. Anyway, so Ahmed Johnson and Booker T, for whatever reason, have been having a beef since the apparently around the year 2000. Did you have any idea about this? Zero, none. I mean, it's like I'm the guy that's in the business that sort of sleeps under a rock, I guess. It's <laughs> man, it's Ahmed Johnson. Uh, specific, I know you were in the WWF very briefly crossover when Ahmed came in, but you were in WCW with him in 2000 when he was big T. Any, any real memories of hanging about Ahmed Johnson? Not, not hanging out with him so much. I did run into him at a show out in California last year. And we had a good long talk, probably the most I've ever spoken with him. Uh, but it was not, it was more about like family stuff, that kind of thing. It was, you know, not much about the business. Uh, I, I think when he came, because I had that brief time with him in the ring in WWF in 95 as Dean Douglas. And, uh, you know, we had talked briefly about that when I saw him last year, uh, because, um, you know, I'd been public about it, had spoken publicly about it many times, about how hard it was to work with him. And, you know, with the things that he had told me last year, you know, that he was being told, like, it's like, it's supposed to be like a job match. And, well, it's not supposed to be a job match. You've got two named guys. You know, so that, I, this is what he's telling me. I, you know, I wanted to fly on the wall at the time. But that would be very indicative of what old school promoters would do. Uh they would come in and, and say, hey, James, I thought you and Shane got along. And he's, of course, hey, wait, wait, we do. We get along great. Goes, well, you didn't hear from me, but he was talking shit on you over there on this other podcast. Uh, and, and they do that because then once you start bickering amongst yourselves, you're not going to go, hey, Vince, we want more money. We're, we, you know, we're, we're doing a good job here. Uh, so that wouldn't have surprised me if they told him that. Plus, he was fairly new to the business at that time. Again, like I mentioned about Bill uh, uh, earlier, Goldberg, uh, you know, he was fairly new to the business and hadn't been, you know, in, in that, uh, you know, around the business, you know, and all the acumen and all the things that go on that you learn over years of being around the business. Uh, but, yeah, I was completely unaware of any issues with him uh, and, and Booker. Um, but, you know, I, I just a little sidebar is I, I think I know Booker much better. Uh, Book's always been fairly open book, no pun intended. Uh you know, I, I have a tendency to believe what he says. So, uh, you know, I've always, Booker and I have always gone along great. Uh, so, and they're not the only Ahmed and I didn't. It's just, you know, I, I think in some ways, like you said, all these years later, suddenly coming to light and then these allegations, well, I'll, I'll bring this secret out of that secret. I'd be curious to hear what the secret is because, uh, I'd, and if it was something that Booker hadn't spoken about, I'd be surprised. Uh, what was the, uh, if there was one, a rep with Ahmed in WCW in 2000? Because he was only there briefly, so I don't even know if you remember what he was doing there. Uh, him and Booker T were fighting over the name T. So he was Big T and Booker T was Booker T, and they had some legal fight over the name T that Ahmed won, and then Booker T couldn't be Booker T anymore. It was the hmm. worst storyline of yeah. that week. Yeah. 
so so it's just a storyline not really a legal thing oh no yeah no of course yeah okay yeah it's uh Strange. Yeah. Uh, what? So, uh, was there any rep or any memories of him in WCW? Or was he just gone so quick that you'd barely remember him? In and out. Yeah. Was, at that time in WCW, I, I, and I, I've, I've tried to convey this before. There was so much lunatics running the asylum. <laughs> you know, that when you got to the got to the building, like you'd have your buddies that you would sort of dress with and talk to and stuff. But yeah, you sort of ended up walking around with blinders on because it was just so chaotic you know it, was, it, it, it seemingly changed taping the taping as to who was in charge uh it might be this person today it might be that person next time we get here this person might be fired or brought back i mean it really was this you know comedy of errors uh like i've said before the you know there's a reason that management business schools mba schools uh talk about wcw and how not to run a company uh because I, as we were watching the uh, pay per view, uh, we're going to talk about this in another episode next week. Uh, next week, in fact, let's do it. Let's do a bit of a tease for it. What did you just watch to review? Halloween Havoc. Uh, hey, first of all, you can see in WCW and the way they presented, especially where I noticed it was during the Flair Sting and uh, and Oli interview. Flair's in the background, uh, and the lighting is so bad you can't even see him. It's like a silhouette in the back. The NWA later WCW begrudgingly was pulling themselves into this newer modern era that WWF had perfected because they were still three feet in the old school. You know they were just fighting this. We're gonna well okay we'll, we'll do a little bit more a little bit more and just said instead of just embracing, uh, I still maintain that what I saw on that show and 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 looking back and what I recollect from that time. WCW still then always had much better wrestling. Uh, now, the booking might have been not quite as tight. Uh, the presentation in many ways, like lighting, was mm-hmm. was lacking. But, uh, yeah, Halloween Havoc, I think we'll, we'll get into a good next in the next next week's episode uh, because there, there were several things that stood out to me about the wrestling, and, and I'll, I'll mention them then. But, uh, you, you know, to me, that was the uh, – uh, Again, what jumped out and always does when I look back to this older stuff is the wrestling itself, the story that's being told for the most part by the time you get to those pay-per-views is is being told. And I'll I'll say this about the Halloween Havoc that we'll talk about next week. It really underscores how crazy it is that the franchise became this heel that they love to hate in, in Philadelphia because, boy, there's a rough crowd Ooh, in Philadelphia yeah. for the dynamic dudes. Boy, I tell you. <laughs> Man, yeah, uh, Chris texts me while you were watching it and just went, Shane's killing himself watching the crowd, the rough crowd. On it. But anyway, that's the tease for next week. Thank you very much, everybody, for watching. We don't have any plugs or anything like that, so all it remains to do is do the sign-off over to you. Hey, happy holidays to everybody. Happy New Year. The 24th makes it great year for everybody happy healthy memorable safe and let's try to get the world on a little bit level of a playing field and away from this insanity appreciate you dropping into franchise university